Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Anytime you experience suffering or misfortune, two arrows fly your way. So in life, usually you can't always control the first arrow. That would be something that just is a situation out of your control. But the second arrow is your reaction in response to the first arrow. We all have parts of ourselves that we're ashamed of and that we don't necessarily want to admit to ourselves or certainly not somebody else. But the first step to creating a path forward is accepting where you're at. Hey everyone, it's Meredith, and this is the Afternoon Snack Podcast. Full disclosure, the initial working title for this episode was How to Be Nicer to Yourself. And then we started organizing it and recording it, and we ended up just going a little bit deeper than how to be nicer to yourself in like kind of a superficial way. So in this episode, we're going to talk about some concepts like radical acceptance, you know, identifying and merging with circumstances that are outside of your control, how to remove shame and guilt and stop negative self-talk spirals. We're going to talk about the arrival fallacy. And then we're going to talk about the concept of gratefulness and gratitude and what it takes to live a happier life. And it ended up being a really great episode and a really deep episode. So we're excited to share this one with you and excited to hear what you think about it. So we hope you enjoy. All right. I'm going to paint a scene for you, dear listener. You are skiing. And you were taking a traverse kind of towards the side country, not very crowded. And as you're skiing, you see up ahead, a small child all by themselves. You're like, what in the world is a child doing out here all by themselves? That seems dangerous. And as you approach, you start to realize that's not a small child at all. That's Meredith. And she is sunk up to her pelvis in the snow. Why is she sunk up to her pelvis in the snow, you ask? Because Alex, her wife, told her that she could take her skis off and walk in her ski boots up the traverse rather than side hiking with her skis on, which she was struggling with. I wasn't struggling with. You were. I was. Now I'm going to switch out a third person because I find that odd. We were skiing on the weekend in Fernie and they opened Snake Ridge or part of it, not the upper part, which is why we were kind of doing this weird uphill traverse. We were trying to ski over an area with very fresh snow. As much as I've improved with skiing, there are still some things that are very new to me and hiking uphill on skis without like skins on them. I don't know how to do that. Do you know how to do it with skins on them? No, but I think it would be easier. <laughs> okay. And there's apparently a technique where instead of trying to just like pick your ski up and like put it down as if you're walking uphill, which is problematic because you end up just kind of sliding backwards. You sort of like pivot the tails of the ski around, but no one, no one told me how to do that. And I'm going to explain this for you skiers out there. It's sidestepping up a hill and Meredith kind of kept sliding forward, like more down the hill and off of the trail. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so 
I guess I didn't know this because I've never taught someone how to sidestep because I thought it was just, it comes naturally to me and I thought it comes naturally to everyone. But apparently you have to kind of lift from your heel and not just the front of your ski. Which like when you think about it intuitively makes a lot of sense. And I was trying to figure out how people around me were doing it with such ease. And I am sitting here just kind of struggling. I saw her struggling, but I didn't really know how to help because to me, it's kind of like having someone say like, how do you walk? And I'd be like, I don't know, just do it. (laughs) (laughs) On a few occasions where we were close together, I said, I don't know how to do this. And you were basically like, all right, well, keep it up. <laughs> like, that's what you said. And then it got to this, there was like one final incline and I was like, Alex, like, I can't do that. Also, you were complaining about being really hot. Oh my God, I was just sweating my ass off. The temperature of your body starts impacting your mood. Yeah. Greatly. In ski gear, 100%. And so I had thought to myself, just ski down whatever you're at and just meet them at the bottom because we were skiing with a friend who was ahead of Alex. And so I I was like, I don't think I do that. Alex, you said, well, you can just take your skis off and walk. And I said, I think so. And the reason why I suggested that is because I saw footprints, but it turns out those footprints after further thought, a snowboarder who had one foot still in his snowboard and was pushing himself along with his free foot. Yes. So he wasn't walking with two feet. He still was like, attached and on the snowboard. his snowboard to keep him above snow. Yeah. So Alex tells me that and then kind of just, you know, side hikes her way up. And I was like, sweet, this is going to be way easier. I'll just carry my skis. I'll be able to cool off. Like, this is going to be great. Pop my skis off. I did both of them. I don't know why I did both of them. I just, I wasn't thinking. I was trusting. That's what I was doing. I was trusting that Alex, the lifetime skier, knew what she was talking about. And so I popped my skis off, took one step out And just immediately, as far as I could sink into the snow, I sunk literally to my pelvis. And then because I was so off balance, there was no way for me to, and I was already detached, so it didn't matter. There's no way for me to save it. So then my other leg dropped into the snow. So I'm literally just like sitting there, like I, like someone has buried me up to my waist. Like, you know, people can bury you at the beach in the sand. It was like that, except snow. I have no skis on. They're sitting beside me. I'm in the snow. There's no one around. And I was like, um, I have absolutely no idea how I'm going to get myself out of this situation. So I start to kind of like wiggle in the snow to create some space, flail, you might call it that. And then it was like a max that I was like, hey, so I tried to pick up my left leg. It was like a max effort mobility exercise to get my knee up close enough to my face so that it was out of the snow. So I had my knee pulled all the way back. My ski boot was out. I had like positioned my ski so I could get my boot into the binding, which I did, but you have absolutely no ability to generate force from that position. So it was like, I set it in the binding and then I was like, "Eh." nothing, Eh. nothing. Like you just couldn't push down. And so there was like a small group that skied by and I was so embarrassed at this point. I was not in a place where I was willing to accept help. So someone skied by and they were like, are you okay? Are you gonna be able to get back in your skis? And I I said, I was just trying to play it cool. (laughs) Like... I was just taking a break and I was just, yeah, just give me a minute. I'll get them back on. I was like, by the way, if your partner ever tells you to take your skis off and walk, don't listen to them. And And I'm sure you didn't sound like that when you said it, because I saw those people ski by me and I said, hey, did you see somebody back there in a green jacket? And they said, yeah, I think she's coming, 
but she's really mad. <laughs> so you're saying I should just leave her. <laughs> and they were probably like, they yeah. all laughed and were probably like, probably at best. Yeah. So then I sort of fiddled with the binding, still couldn't do it. And this one woman sort of traversed by and she came by and she held my uphill ski. And so I got that one in. So, okay, now I'm standing, which is good. Cause like that's, progress. And so I go to try to work the other ski on, can't get it, kept like sliding down. This guided group comes up and this guy, I guess the leader, he was probably with like eight other people. He comes around on the like downhill side, which is what I was struggling with. He starts like digging a hole, like a trench for the ski, puts it in there. He's like, you know, trying to get it stable. But every time I try to click in, it would just slide further down. So now he's like underneath my ski. This man has positioned his body between me and like this tree. That's how he was bracing. And I was just like, Oh my God, that was like kind of working. So then he had one of his buddies come up and like hold the tail of my ski. So I'm and like, were you like, I'm so sorry. I'm in this position. Thanks for helping. I had done a backflip up on that cliff up there. <laughs> and I just, I totally ate shit and ragdolled and my skis came off. And that's why I'm here now. Is that's, that what you said? Yeah, I was, <laughs> I'm such a hardcore freestyle skier, as you can see by my outfit. I was like, I would rather be dead than in this situation. Well, right you now. should have told him you were that good and he wouldn't have questioned your abilities. Yeah. Next time. One of your greatest weaknesses with skiing still is popping your skis on in the best of times. <laughs> I'm like, it's funny. I, like Meredith has been skiing now for a few seasons and I still am like, okay, hold your boot up and I have to like take my pole. <laughs> Yeah. Tap her boot to get yeah. the snow off. My boots get like an um, abnormal amount of snow in them. Mm -hmm. Just leave it alone. No. So I just, I had this like flock of people helping me and it was like 11 out of 10 embarrassing. I wanted to like melt into the snow and just disappear, never to be seen again. So anyways, I get the skis on and he's like, yeah, you're probably going to check your binding because it's like full of snow when you get to a flat spot. And I was like, yeah, because there's definitely flat spots around here. And of course, like one old man skied by some, I don't remember where he was in the order, but he said, you can't take your skis off as if I like had not figured that out at that point. Classic old man. No yeah. offense to old men out there. I'm like, thank you. Thank you. That's so very helpful, sir. You are wise. Yeah. So I essentially got my skis on and just um, as soon as I could get off of that trail, I just peeled off and skied down. And the, like skiing was good. I was so mad though. Yeah. You were really mad. I remember at one... Because I actually traversed backwards mm -hmm. to try to find you and you were gone. And I was like, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. And so I went with the, our friend and was like, we will just go to the bottom and meet her down there. I don't know where she went. We did meet you at the bottom and you were not in a great mood. I don't think I was talking and you had the audacity to like put your arm around me on the lift. <laughs> I was like, I was what? trying to make the best of a bad situation. Are you doing? Don't. Okay. The problem was, was it me. was you and me and our friend. We couldn't have an argument and like cess this out Yep, with him there. So it was like, I was trying to make it seem normal when it clearly wasn't. It put him in this uncomfortable position, which I was acutely aware of. You were probably very aware of it too, but couldn't get yourself to come to terms with what had happened and couldn't like bring yourself into a place where you could be a regular human being. No, no, I couldn't. I like knew I was like, I'm making this situation uncomfortable. I don't care. <laughs>
<laughs> we get to the top and our friend's like, I'm going to meet a couple other friends that I promised I would take them skiing. So I'll see you guys later. And I was like, 100%, he is not going to meet friends. But then ironically, we ran into him with his friends. Yeah. So and that made me feel better. Yeah. Alex said, I was convinced you were just trying to blow us <laughs> off, which I wouldn't have blamed you for, by the way. But yeah, that was not great. I still, I would say I've 90% forgiven you for that, but there's still 10% that's going to hold on to that for on the bright side. Here's what I learned. I will never listen to you again. Okay. Well, I think you may have 100% forgiven me by now. Had I not said on the chairlift, this is no one's fault. Oh my God. You actually said that. And then our friend was like, did you like lose a ski on the traverse? I said, no, Alex told me I could take my skis off. And you were like, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. There was no ownership. I said you could. Oh, okay. Yeah. So semantics. Anyways. Are important is what you were no, going to say. No, they're not. No, they're not. The suggestion was there. And then the, yeah, this is no one's fault. I was like, I could have pushed you off the chairlift <laughs> at that point. It's okay. I know how to handle these situations because they've hap they happen at least once every season. I thought this year we were going to make it without me being blamed for something that this I This was didn't like do. more, this was a little more extreme. It took a, a more extreme effort to get into a TIFF this year. So that's good. Yeah. It wasn't just normal skiing. It had to be some very peculiar situation with legitimate bad advice. It but. usually starts with like being really mad and then there are always some tears. <laughs> <laughs> and then you usually come around. Because it's scary. There's like, there's nothing quite like being legitimately scared for life and limb. Okay. So on that note, I did not do a good job of accepting the situation that I was in, which is a thing we're going to talk about today, acceptance. And I would like to request a pass on that. I give you that pass. Okay, great. Let's get into it then. So radical acceptance is a concept that I wouldn't say is like totally new to us, but the way that we're kind of thinking about it is new based on some things that we have read and experiences that we've had in therapy with other professionals. And so it's a really interesting concept that has pretty much universal applicability. Why don't you talk about it? This was kind of briefly touched on in one of our Valentine's Day episodes in regards to the dishwasher. That's the example that I like to use here because I think in a relationship, a lot of us struggle with another person doing something that isn't done the way that we want it done. And that's okay because we're different people. But for me... I was getting so upset and letting my emotions kind of control me whenever Meredith didn't load the dishwasher properly. So I go to therapy and the therapist is basically like, have you heard of radical acceptance? Like just radically accept that it's unlikely that she's going to load the dishwasher properly. And it was like my brain broke. In what way? I think for so long, the problem that needed to be solved was how do I get Meredith to one load the dishwasher the way that I want it loaded the right way in my mind or two, get her to care enough about me who wants a dishwasher loaded a certain way to do it properly. It was never about what I can be doing to re relieve the pressure on the situation. Like I never thought it was me. And I've been called intolerant before. I've been called short. Rigid. I've been told that I yeah, rigid. I hold people to high standards, which are all very true. But in my mind, I always see the other person just not meeting my standards. 
It's never like, oh, my expectations are too high or my standards are too high or I'm too rigid. I always just put it on the other person. As much as I thought that that was like relinquishing my responsibility, it was taking away from my life. It was impacting my life so negatively, having my emotions at the whim of somebody else's behavior. You see this in other ways too. For example, and I know that you read this in one of your Buddhist books. I love the Buddhist books. And thinking back, I'm like, ah, it just didn't click then when you explained it. It's like when you're sitting in traffic and one of my clients actually told me about this as well. You can sit here when you're in traffic and just get so mad at the situation that somebody got in a car accident or somebody caused this or the city didn't plan properly and you're getting so mad about it. The fact that you're stuck in traffic, the fact that you have places to be or that you're wasting your life sitting in your car By thinking about it in that way, you're just taking away from your own life rather than just like accepting that this is the situation and making the most of it, listening to a podcast or music or something like that. So the way that it's described in the Buddhist book that I was reading was essentially when we don't have a complete understanding of situations, we fill in the gaps with facts that we believe are true, but probably aren't. So we, we make up the part of the story that we don't know. And then we emotionally react to that. So in traffic, you know, someone cuts you off or they, they cause an accident or whatever. They slow you down. They put you in a situation. The assumption is that person's a bad driver. They're stupid. They don't care. They're reckless, whatever. When maybe the accident was caused by an animal or something that was completely out of their control, you know, maybe they are flustered because they're trying to get to the hospital to see their grandparent who's in there. And that's why they cut you off. So you're not like, oftentimes the the emotional response is to a story that we've made up in our heads. The Buddhist parable of two arrows, that parable goes, anytime you experience suffering or misfortune, two arrows fly your way. So in life, like you can't usually, you can't always control the first arrow. That would be something that just is a situation out of your control. But the second arrow is your reaction in response to the first arrow. And that arrow is optional. And so they go on to say the first arrow is painful, but often what causes even more pain is the second arrow. So that brings more pain, more suffering, more emotional response. Well, the emotional response is pain. Is pain. Suffering. Yes. Yeah. So the second arrow represents our reaction to the bad event or situation or whatever. And it's the manner in which we choose to respond emotionally. You know, the Buddhists go on to say, you know, we should always be striving to avoid the second arrow. And to do that, like to bring these two concepts together, that's what radical acceptance does. It's a tool to accept this is reality. This is happening. Accepting that you don't, in many cases, know all of what's going on. And therefore, we don't want to assume intent. And it limits or removes the emotional response to a situation that is otherwise outside of your control. That's exactly it. The way that I see radical acceptance, there are two ways that it impacts life. It's like small scale radical acceptance. And that's kind of like what you're talking about with the second arrow. It's like something that happened. So for example, rupees on the carpet, which was a common theme when she was a puppy. That's the first arrow. The second arrow is whether or not I have just this like huge emotional reaction, disappointment in myself, disappointment in you, disappointment in Rue. That's not productive. 
Yeah. Like getting mad is not productive. Being reactive is not productive. And honestly, that's going to cause potentially the third arrow and then the fourth arrow and, and then, then the, the fifth arrow, the 10th. And you're yeah. just going and like, I mean, I don't know how many times she peed on the carpet, but we're, you know, yeah. 20 arrows in at that point. Like you say, we're, you're a pin cushion. Exactly. And, you know, each and every time you just get more and more mad because it keeps happening. And like the reaction is so unproductive, but in your mind, it's the only thing that you know. Yeah. For me, at least I should say. It's the only thing I know is to get mad, to get upset, to get angry. And like never was it like, okay, what has happened here? Who dropped the ball? And not to bl put blame, but it's like, what is a productive response? Maybe it's that Rue needs to go outside every 30 minutes. But like we never even had that discussion. Instead, I would just get mad and then we would have an argument. And then she pees again while we're having an argument. Accepting that something happened sitting with the discomfort of your feeling and maybe like switching it, checking the facts. Like yeah. you said, what is actually happening? Am I assuming that Meredith is lazy and didn't take her out? Am I assuming that Rue is going to pee on the carpet forever and she's a dumb dog or something about myself? No, the fact is like we just missed. Maybe we were both caught up in work or whatever it is and accepting that. And then that acceptance allows you to now productively respond to avoid that from happening again. So you avoid the second arrow and the third arrow and then the fourth and on and on. Another way that I conceptualize radical acceptance is bigger. Being gay is an example. I think for so long, I tried to resist and deny reality. I knew I was gay for a long time. <laughs> and I just, I was so afraid of that being the, the situation that I just, I couldn't accept it. And so what I ended up doing was just being pretty unhappy for a lot of my life, at least in one respect of my life, which I believe impacted all other aspects of my life. But that's one example. I think a lot of people are unhappy in their careers. And it's just like, you know, you try to use this positive language like, oh, it's okay. Or it's not, that bad. It's not that bad. It allows me to provide for my family. Unless you fully accept in my first example, who you are as a person and then say like, what do I need to do? Who do I need to surround myself with to change this situation? What do I need to do? And for me, that was coming out of the closet or the job situation, which I've also been through. It's like, I need to accept that I am so unhappy. And then now what do I do? And even right. if it's like, okay, I need to stay in this job for another year. At least there's a light at the end of the tunnel. At least you're doing something about it. And you can objectively identify like, I will probably not be happy the hours that I'm at work. So what do I need to do outside of work to balance the equation? To yeah. Make me feel happy and connected and like bring joy to my life. Like how do we, cause there are plenty of people who work jobs that they don't love and they're happy. So it's like, what are they doing? They're filling their cup somewhere else. Like resisting reality is not going to make you happy. Yeah. I think and that's called magical thinking. Like it's just sort of trying to convince yourself that everything's okay. That you actually do like your job, that things are going well when like they're not. And that doesn't mean, and we'll get into this, it doesn't mean that you've done anything wrong or a bad person. It just is reality. You, when you can sit with that and accept that it is reality, then you can actually make informed decisions about how to move forward, when to move forward, what to do, what to add, that kind of thing. And we see this in the fitness and nutrition space as well on small scales and big scales. And again, we'll probably talk more in detail about this, like judgment, shame, guilt, and this like resistance to accepting the truth. Yeah. And for a lot of people, the truth is I am unhealthy or I am unhappy with my health. 
yeah. my situation. I am unhappy that I can't do this with my my kids. I'm happy that I I can't go hiking with my friends because I'm so out of shape. I'm happy that I'm uncomfortable. Whatever yeah. it may be, I get that. Like it doesn't matter what part of your life it's happening in. I think it's universal. Like I think we all have parts of ourselves that we're ashamed of and that we don't necessarily want to admit to ourselves or uh, certainly not somebody else. But the first step to creating a path forward is accepting where you're at. It's no different than, and again, I'm, I'm not a therapist and I'm not as experienced in this realm, but I imagine it's the same thing with mental health disorders. You have to accept first, I have depression before you can seek help. If you keep resisting reality, if you keep saying like, everything's fine, it's just a bad day or it's, it's circumstantial or this or that, like you're never going to find a path out. It's similar probably with addiction. And I don't know what the 12 steps are, but I'm sure that there has something to do with like acknowledging this, the problem. I think that is the first step. Is, is the like problem. Admitting or, that you have a problem. Yeah. There's just so much power in accepting. So I think of it in two ways. And I don't know if this is necessarily the way it's supposed to be conceptualized, but this is the way I conceptualize it. It's like the daily acceptance of your situation. So maybe for you, when you were skiing, you can't change the fact that you popped out of your skis. You can't change the fact that I suggested something that you shouldn't have done. <laughs> you can change your reaction to it. Yeah. And honestly, maybe had you not been so mad, you would have been more capable of getting out of the situation. You yeah. know, when you're like lifting and you keep missing and then the more mad you get, the worse you get at doing the lift. <laughs> yeah. But you keep trying. But you keep trying. Yeah. That's it. It's like, but if you can step back and say, okay, what am I actually doing wrong here and stay calm, cool and collected? Yeah. Then maybe you can get back on track and hit the lift. Yeah. That's like accepting that there are setbacks and that's just life. It's impossible to avoid frustrations or disappointments or losses or quote unquote, failures. And to think that you can get through life without those things is not only unrealistic, but it's downright unattainable. And so like, there's no amount of positive thinking or magical thinking that can change that truth. But so many people set down the path of simply avoiding accepting the difficulties that they are experiencing. And it creates a bit of a like cognitive dissonance, like a separation of the way that you are thinking and what reality actually is. There are people who do that for years in their life. There are people who like, they, they'd go on so long living and believing that they are a certain type of person or parent or athlete or just human being that the, the longer they go, the harder it is to close that gap. And when it does close, because I think life will eventually close that gap for most people, because that's what life does that's going to come crashing down if you just avoid doing that type of work forever. And I don't think when you talk about acceptance, it's important to qualify it. It's not like a passive acceptance. No. Like, oh, my life's shitty. I accept that and that's fine. It's like there is a active acceptance and then doing something about it as hard as that is. Yeah. And, and that's the big radical acceptance. I have accepted that I am gay and now I am going to come out. I'm going to share that with one person and yeah. then another person as uncomfortable as that was. And I think on a small scale, there is accepting and it's not just like, oh, I'm Meredith never going to do the dishwasher. <laughs> it's almost accepting and saying like, I'm doing this for myself. I'm not necessarily letting Meredith off the hook. I'm letting myself off the hook. I'm allowing myself to live and have a happy day and not let this 
impact me yeah. like it was before. And it's, it's crazy. And I don't want to sound like too dramatic here, but I think radical acceptance, the concept of it has changed my life. I actually thought the other day, what if I become a person who's just never like rattled? And I think you're right. You can't avoid frustration. You can't avoid disappointment or loss, but you can certainly create armor for it and be able to kind of fight against it. And I don't think it ever becomes super easy. Like I'm just never going to be that person who just lets things roll off my back. I can actively push that off my back and be like, I'm choosing to be this person and maybe it will get easier. I hope it does. Yeah. But it's, it's like, wow, to never get really mad at you. That would be great for something that you're just doing in a non malicious way. I was saying to my therapist, so it's like, maybe you just have to stop putting expectations on other people. And she kind of said, I get that, but I think it's still okay to have healthy expectation. Oh, 100%. So you should have healthy expectations from your partner or from other people of mutual respect or being treated like a human being. Yeah. Someone crosses the line and is actually treating you like shit or maybe cheating on you or something like that at that point then you put up boundaries. But once again, those boundaries are part of that body armor. It's like, I am accepting that this person is doing this to me, but I'm not going to accept it. Yeah. And then it just kind of allows you to go through life. Like you have on a, like a nice Gore-Tex jacket. Like it doesn't change the fact that it is raining. It's definitely raining, but instead of soaking into your clothes and getting you wet and miserable and cold, it's just kind of this fleeting experience that you have because you are armored to it. I think that's really good. The next thing that we're going to talk about, and we already touched on it a little bit, is identifying with or merging with circumstances and the impact that that can have. So I'll qualify this by talking about there's this concept in behavior change about driving behavior change from a place of identity. And if you've read Atomic Habits or follow or know anything about James Clear, he talks about this a lot where we want to start to identify as a person who does certain things. That's a good thing. I think when we, you know, you start to identify as a runner, even though, you know, you run a 5k in 33 minutes or something like objectively not a good runner, but you're someone who runs often. You identify as someone who does the daily behaviors that will get you where you want to go. And that famous line, like everything you do or don't do, or every action you take is a vote for the person that you will become like that's identity. There's that concept. And then there's a concept that we'll talk about, which is resisting the human tendency to identify with your circumstances. So on one hand, we definitely want to embody our ideals. And I think that's what identity is, but we don't want to identify with what we are experiencing in life that either is outside of our control or it's inside of our control. And we're choosing to become like that result. From a language standpoint, would I am a failure versus I failed? Yes. Be a good example. Yeah. And that's a, I think that's the prime example in behavior change. And certainly in when people struggle with performance or with nutrition, when we assign ourselves, when we say that we have failed at this thing that we set out to do, and part of this is a societal issue. We have a hard time accepting that failure is a natural part of any process. But a lot of people then say, I am a failure. And that's not accurate. You're just someone who for whatever reason, has failed. Maybe you failed for no fault of your own. Maybe you failed because you didn't do a good job preparing for whatever it is you were trying to do. That still doesn't make you a failure. When you assign yourself a failure, you stop. You kind of remove the ability to learn from that experience. And that's what's so important about failure. I think when we really 
look at what failure is. It's just, you're not doing what you set out to do. And there's going to be a reason for that. It's not because of anything inherent to you. And it's the same thing with winning. I think that in this, you see, it's a little more subtle, but I think you see it happen. You see people who have a lot of success. They start to believe instead of I am experiencing success, I am a success. I am a winner. I achieve. I am an achiever. And really, when you boil that down, it's the same logic. No, you are achieving. You are experiencing success. You are winning. You are doing those things and having that success because of behaviors and things that you're doing in your day-to-day life. So I think it's when we identify too much with what we're doing well, and we assign ourselves like, you know, I'm a winner. I am successful. I am a success. I think that can, now you're kind of, you start to operate from a place of ego. That's also a problem. Yeah, I think... In both scenarios, if you're identifying with your circumstance and you're assigning an identity based on your experience, you're trapping yourself. So if you say you're a winner, you're capping yourself. You're limiting your ceiling. If you're a failure, yeah, you're in a trap. Again, like where's the way out if you're inherently a failure? That means you cannot succeed. What I think you don't have hope, you don't have confidence. If you say, I failed, then you can say, how did this happen? Why did I fail? What can I do differently to have more of a chance of success next time? It's like, what's going to create the path forward? And merging with your circumstance or tying your identity to an outcome prevents the path forward. Yeah. And in both situations, it creates blind spots. And that's the same thing with success. When you have a lot of success and you stop getting curious and you just start assuming you're having success because of who you are. Well, now you have tons of blind spots. Like either you're going to stop having success and be really confused. Or like you said, you're putting a ceiling on what you might actually be capable of achieving because you're lacking curiosity. And I think both are problematic. I More often than not, I think you see the former. I think you see people who just experience so much shame and guilt with failure that they They're like, oh, I have to merge with this. You know, not to oversimplify it, but it is an example of a victim mentality where you're you're saying, I don't have control over this. It's just who I am or it's just what's happening to me where I think there is still a a fair amount of control that you have in life. Yeah, and we see this a lot in the nutrition and wellness space. A lot of people come in and they have merged with their circumstances. Like I'm just a fat person or I'm unhealthy or I am a failure. I I mean, we hear this on a daily basis. We unfortunately get text messages that are like, I'm a failure. I feel like a failure. I'm this and that. And it's not, there's so much judgment assigned to what has happened instead of just saying like, this is what happened. How do I get out of it? Or what can I do to help? And And again, it's like asking someone for a way out. Yeah. Or being open to the fact that there's a way out. Yeah. And that prevents a lot of people from making meaningful change to their health is signing judgment and identifying with the circumstances. A good line that I like, and this is from kind of a self-love approach, but it also, I think, pertains to this topic is you are not your body. You are in your body. So just because your body isn't as healthy as you wish it was, doesn't mean it's always going to be that way. You can separate yourself from your health situation and productively say, how can I change this? How can I change my health? Like your behaviors aren't predicated on what your behaviors have been in the past. You can change that, but you have to have hope and there has to be a a confidence factor. 
And sometimes surrounding yourself with the right person or putting a coach or somebody else in place to help you believe that that's the case is really important. Getting uncomfortable. I mean, we've talked about the bucking bronco or the people who sign up thinking, oh, this is new. I've tried everything else under the sun. This is like this really balanced approach that I've never tried before. And two weeks in, they're not losing weight right away. They're not fully trusting and they're not willing to stay in a a place that is uncomfortable for long enough to actually see the benefits. Yeah. And that's kind of like, there's science behind that too, with nutrition anyways. They looked at, I think there was a like a 2018 Stanford study where they looked at a number of different diets, low carb, low fat, different types of diets. And the, the single predictor of diet success, like weight outcomes, health outcomes, wasn't the diet specifically. It wasn't, you know, whether you're on keto or low fat or whatever. It was how compliant and how long a person stuck with the approach. That was the predictor. It was adherence. And so that's like, yeah, sticking with something is so important. And I think that we live in a world where there's so many shiny objects out in the nutrition space that promise to solve your problems. Well, number one, they create the problem. Like menopause is a great example of, you know, oh, it's a problem. It needs to be solved. And oh, by the way, you should be on the Galveston diet, which is this sort of new dietary approach for menopause. Well, guess what? Like there's no dietary approach that is going to reverse or remove the symptoms of menopause. It doesn't exist. People will sell it to you and they'll tell you that it does, but it doesn't. And so that's another group of people that really struggles with feeling like they have some control because they've been told by so many people, menopause is out of your control. There's nothing you can do to change the weight gain. Things are going to change. Your body's going to change. It's going to be out of your control. And then what happens when your entire friend circle is also going through menopause. And it's just like an echo chamber of this is out of our control. The doctor said we could, there's nothing we can do about it. We're going to lose lean body mass. We're going to gain fat in our midsection. We just have to embrace it, whatever. Like that's your echo chamber. That's your circle. Instead of what the science shows, which actually like number one, menopause doesn't physiologically cause your metabolism to change in any way. It can impact your desire and likelihood of like moving your body. You exercise with less intensity. Usually there are things that change. There's nothing that changes that is 100% outside of your control. Like you, there's still a lot of control. And it's funny how, when you tell people that they get so offended, Well, not everybody, some people feel quite empowered by that information, which makes sense. Cause it's like, Hey, you know, this thing that you were told you had no control over, actually you do have some control over it. You at least have control over the progression and the direction that you go with it. And then others feel so disempowered by that. They're like, well, no, it just, it feels so out of control. This is not what I've been told. It's like, they see these changes happening perhaps because they are not controlling or taking control of aspects that are within their control, but they want to place the blame on something that is outside of their control, which is actually insane to think about. A lot of this you can get from the way that they describe the situation. I'm not saying you can't turn these people's minds around with some information or practice or guidance, but if someone comes, they say, this is happening to me. That is kind of like, I am, this is happening to me. I have no control. There's a difference between that and I am noticing this or this has been my experience. And that allows you to kind of say that is completely understandable. Of course, you want to validate that, but they're open to the fact that there might be another reason rather than it's just something that's happening. And it's something that is not in their control, like you said. Yeah, I think that's a good segue into kind of removing guilt and shame from the way that we talk about ourselves and our situation and what we struggle with and replacing that with self-compassion, the power that that can have. 
Yeah. And it's difficult. Like there's an evolutionary prerogative to shame. And this is kind of like, you know, going back to the parable of the arrows, I see potential for you're trying to avoid the second arrow. And then what happens if, even though you know you're avoiding the second arrow, you don't, you emotionally react. And then there's shame for emotionally reacting in a way that you don't really want to. There's like awareness that it's something you're trying to do better with and you still struggled. Hello, there's shame. And then there's just generally like shame with failure. I think a really powerful way to correct that and the way that people think about shame is language, specifically removing judgmental language from the way that you talk to yourself and the way that you talk to other people. My big no-no words have become should and shouldn't. Or for a phrase, I feel like I should insert whatever. Mm -hmm. If you go listen to Lisa Leahy on Brene Brown's podcast, the Immunity to Change podcast, Lisa Leahy is like, she's so good at what she does, but she's correcting Brene Brown on her language constantly. Like, ooh, let's remove some, like that felt judgmental. Like, let me help you. Yeah, Brene Brown is using judgmental language on herself. Yeah. And I think that highlights how much of a strong habit that that is in our society. Yeah. Yeah. Brene Brown, who she's probably the most well-researched person with regards to shame and vulnerability and has them. Yeah. And depth of experience in helping people remove shame yeah. is using it on herself without even realizing it. That's how ingrained it is. But the language thing's big. And we talk to clients so much that you just, you see it come through. And I do a lot of like, I ask if I can, you know, correct language or can I rewrite that in a way that is a, a bit less judgmental. And a lot of that is removing you know, should or shouldn't or any kind of blaming language and just objectively stating, this is what happened. This is what I did. This is what I wish that I had done differently. And I think that's fine. But should and shouldn't, number one, takes you out of the present. And then number two, applies a lot of judgment to what you're doing or not doing. It's like, what I did was bad, therefore I'm bad. It can kick off kind of a pretty nasty shame cycle that can be difficult to get out of. And especially if you're someone who is prone to mental spiraling and negative self-talk. I guess one word you could use to describe that is self-distancing. Yeah. Distancing, again, from the situation and looking at it objectively. So sometimes I will say to Meredith, like, what would you tell your client if she's struggling with something? I'll say, well, what would you tell your client if they were struggling with the same thing? And that you can do that with yourself, too. I do that. Sometimes I say, okay, I if I'm struggling with something nutrition related, maybe going out for dinner or eating something I didn't necessarily want to eat or messing up my nutrition before a long run. And I'm so disappointed in myself. Like what would I say to my client if yeah. they came to me with that? And would I say like, oh, Alex, you're such a failure. Like you're better than this. You should have done that. You shouldn't have done that. No, I would have said to my client like, hey, that's okay. Let's learn from this. When's your next long run? Let's plan ahead. Yeah. We just don't offer ourselves that same... No. Slack. And not it's not slack to let us off the hook. It goes back to the radical acceptance, accepting what happened, taking the judgment out of it and finding a path forward. It's productive. There's two scenarios that I see this play out in a lot. And the first one is kind of more of like a athletic gym training situation. And then the second is emotional eating. Mm -hmm. And so there are some tools that you can put into place. You know, when you get into to negative self-talk spirals, when you're in your head, you know, let's say you're struggling in the gym or, you know, you're competing, but you're just having kind of a rough go. You might be saying to yourself, like, I suck. I'm never going to make it. You know, I can't even do this workout or always going to lose to this person, whatever. Like you just kind of start talking yourself down and down and down and down. 
one of the best tools that you can use in that situation is to stop talking in first person. So instead of saying, I, 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 me, 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 or even you, because some people speak to themselves that way, you suck, you are never going to make it, you're a failure, switch that to third person. It's really hard to say Meredith is never going to make it because Meredith is a failure. Do you think that adds like a human aspect to it? Like, I think that's, oh, I'm actually also human. Yeah. It humanizes you. And it's very difficult to speak to other people that way. And we would never do it. You just, you don't talk to other people that way. And so it kind of, it creates a little bit of, it creates a little mental space between me, 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 I, 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 and Meredith, the human being who is just having a hard time. So that's a really good way to just sort of, sort of break the negative cycle or at least slow it down. But it's an active process. Like you have to be willing to, to catch yourself in it and then stop. And this is the tricky thing. Cause I think for a lot of people, that negative spiral of self-talk and shame, just, it feels so familiar. There's almost a comfort to it. And so there's a discomfort in breaking it, even though, you know, it's a, a pattern that you want to break and there's a, a productive outcome on the other side of doing that work. So you have to be willing to catch yourself and then do something differently. And as awkward as it feels to switch and speak to yourself in third person, as if you're speaking to another person, that's a great way to break it. It's kind of like when you're arguing with someone and this can be your partner or somebody else and you feel so strongly about your side. It's almost like in that moment, switching your thought to the other person's perspective. Yeah. It's so difficult to do. You're like, no, 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 I don't want to do that. It's because you're so set and comfortable in what you believe and to think of another person's perspective. Yeah. Why might they be supporting Trump kind of thing. Even like, that's crazy to, for me to think. Like, I'm yeah. so uncomfortable <laughs> with that idea. But it's like, it's even just doing that. It's like, what is the other side of this? Yeah, and don't say like, oh, they're supporting Trump because they're a bad person. You're like, okay, no, they have, there's obviously some value that they have that they see as being fulfilled. What is that? And, and like, maybe least, you don't agree with it, yeah. but at least you have a better understanding. Rather than just going, oh no, they're just a garbage human being. Like you can be disappointed in your performance in the gym. You can have disappointment, but having a clear understanding of like why something happened that made you disappointed is very helpful. Yeah. 100%. So it's like all about understanding and just really looking at things objectively. Yeah. So the emotional eating is kind of the same approach, different execution, but it's creating space. Emotional eating is tricky because it just is so complicated. But assuming that it's just kind of an emotional dysregulation to a stress cue, the way I, I usually have people work through that is to number one, give yourself permission to eat whatever it is that you want to eat. You're feeling stressed out and you want to go headfirst into the pile of donuts in your office. Okay. You can do that. You can say to yourself, Meredith, you can have those donuts, but we are going to go for a 15 minute walk. We're going to take 15 minutes. Like, can I wait just 15 minutes to have those donuts? And then you say, yes, I can. I can wait that 15 minutes. And then during that 15 minutes, you're going to go do something else. So I said, walk, you can maybe listen to some music, play a little video game on your phone, whatever it is. Like just yeah. do something else. That's in DBT called like a distractor. Yeah. And then after like in, in, in DBT, you might also go splash some cold water on your face or rinse your wrists and, and expose your body to some temperatures, which can help regulate the amygdala and get you back in your frontal lobe 
where better decision-making happens, but whatever it is, like you're just going to go and do something that can kind of distract and help get your nervous system calm down a little bit. And then after that 15 minute period of time, you are going to go back and check and see if you want those donuts. And if you still do, you're going to have however many, but it's very likely that you won't. That's a really good tool in breaking that emotional eating cycle and the shame that can come with just feeling like you want those donuts. Like, oh, I'm a bad person because I want to eat these donuts or I ate these donuts. Like sometimes you just have to get unconventional in the way that you break that cue craving response reward cycle, especially when there's stress and emotional dysregulation involved. And that's, I'm not an emotional eating ED person, but that's something that I, I read a long time ago and I've used with people and it has worked really well. Yeah, I will add to that. So I think your idea of going for a 15 minute walk, and I'm speaking from experience, not from an emotional eating perspective, but just from um, emotional dysregulation and my tendency to overreact to situations. So going for a 15 minute walk has not worked for me. It has made things worse. I'm a spiraler. So what will happen is I can go for a 15 minute walk. And if I'm not aware of what's happening, I will just think of myself into more of a tizzy, which in certain moments I didn't even know was possible. <laughs> like the, the, the tizziness, there's no limit to the tizziness that the I can get does into. Not exist. The limit of tizziness <laughs> does not exist. Now, a 15 minute walk with a distraction, so music or going for a drive or going somewhere or talking to another human being that is not in your environment where that you're upset can help kind of like break that. Yeah. But you actively have to try. And once again, because I'm just such a big fan of radical acceptance, there is also an element of like, this is what is happening right now. Like I am in a state where I might want to emotional eat. It's not just this emotion. It's like you are taking a step away. You are becoming, again, another concept, like a wise observer, checking the facts. What happened today that has put me in this place? Maybe it's not even anything that you really even need to be upset over. Or maybe yeah. you'll think of a, a way to problem solve in those 15 minutes. So it's it's not necessarily just about like going for a walk and hoping you'll snap out of it. I just don't think that's possible. It's about using those 15 minutes away from the donuts to get clarity. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. For me, I have slipped back into old tendencies and I have slipped back into that, like you mentioned before, associating <laughs> guilt and shame onto my reactions. It's like the third, it's a, it's a completely different arrow. It's yeah. a shotgun. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, I had the, I had the experience. Then I had the reaction, which is the second arrow. And then I shot myself by just being so guilty over my reaction. And it's I just, think, yeah. Ugh, and that's, the, tough. that's like so important to say is like, you can set down this path with like, I'm going to radically accept, I'm not going to get hit by the second arrow, but like, guess what? You will, it will still happen. And so it's really hard when you're at, when you're working so hard on your reactions to things and being better when you slip up. And that's probably the most pivotal moment that there is in actual pattern behavior changes. What do you do when you fail at doing the thing that you're working hard to not do? So we see this in nutrition a lot. First month is easy for people. Yeah. And they're like, holy shit, I've, I've got this. It's amazing. Like and dusting his shoulders yeah. off. <laughs> like, this is How cake. did I ever struggle with this? This is cake. And yeah. then it's like, you know, four, six, eight, eight weeks in, it, it's like I went on vacation and I basically did what I have always done. Right. This isn't working. I'm never going to be able to do this. And it, it really is. It's like, don't do that. Like it, you have to be prepared that you're going to slip up. 
And that's okay. But being aware of that and, and really letting that go and getting back on the horse and understanding that specific thing. And I'm sure we can all relate to it in many different facets of life. So helpful. Yeah. And that happened the other day to me. It happened like it was like an hour after. I was like, oh. Yeah. And it's upsetting. It is really because you're like, I've done all this work, but it doesn't mean the work hasn't been done. It's one step back, two steps forward. Yeah. We're not going for like behavioral abstinence. I don't no. think we can set the bar that high. No. Yeah. Especially with old patterns. Um, so do you want to talk quickly about a rival fallacy? Yeah. So the like kind of keeping in like this podcast is kind of how to like unlock some happiness patterns. A rival fallacy is this idea that when I achieve X, I will be happy. There's like a, an end point. If I can just get here, then I'll be satisfied. And that's kind of, there's also another Buddhist parable called the hungry ghost. And that's kind of, there's always a need for more, 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 more. And that is, I find that's the same as the arrival fallacy and it's human behavior, which is this idea that there's an end point when there isn't, there's just going to be another peak. There's just going to be another, you're just going to move the goalpost. This is very common when we talk about body weight, body composition and body image. Yeah. People think, oh, if I can just have a six pack, I'll be happy. And it's like, no, you won't. Or if I can get to 130 pounds or if I can just get veins on my biceps or like, I mean, I've heard like a Christmas tree on my back. Like that's a thing. <laughs> I just or, need a thigh gap. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like everybody has that thing yeah. that's going to make them happy. And I always like to think of this and I never really say it to a client because you don't want to take away from their experience and their feelings, but nobody it's, we've all heard it. No one gets to the end of their life and is on their deathbed thinking, I wish I had a six pack Yeah. or I wish I had made this much money. Oh, you don't say that to client. I say that to clients sometimes. I think I do sometimes, but it's after understanding and, and then having a like discussion. Yeah. You don't want to just at them. But yeah, no one's going to get to the end of their life and say like, oh, you know, life could have been so much better had I weighed 130 pounds. Yeah. I mean, that's the process in the, not to be super cliche, but the journey is what brings you happiness. Like you have to enjoy the process of getting where you want to go and also realize like you're never going to get there. There's no there. There's no summit. There's no, okay, I'm, I'm done now. I can rest. Like you better you need to find a way to enjoy the work that you're doing because that's all there is. Truthfully, that's all there is. I think everybody has probably suffered from this at some point in their life, which is just belief that if I achieve X, then I'll be satisfied. And like I did, like I thought going to the CrossFit games was going to be this like amazing experience. It was going to change my life. And, but it didn't. And I know a lot of people who have that same experience. So you better, like, it was a good thing that I enjoyed the process of getting there because that's what I think about. When I think about that time in my life, it's not competing at the games. It was all of the training and the experiences and the people that went into getting to that point. It had nothing to do with the actual competition experience and the achievement of making it there. We always use running as an example, but crossing the finish line of a marathon is not it. No. When you cross the finish line of a marathon, you're not like, wow, I crossed the finish line. I did it. I can stop now. It's, wow. All of that training and work, that's what causes that emotion, that feeling of crossing the finish line. It's not just the crossing of the finish line. It's not getting to compete at the CrossFit Games. It's all of it. So encompassing. And if you didn't enjoy the process, then you're going to cross that finish line and you're probably going to be disappointed. 
Yeah. At least not maybe in that moment, but after you're going to say, huh, well, that was kind of a waste of time. Especially if you're not like you're doing something that you don't really like to get to try to get to a place that you think will make you happy. Like that happens all the time. So there's just so much value in finding a way to enjoy the process and the people who you're with doing it, like everything that goes into life all bundled up into like, this is me. This is the path that I'm on. I'm on it with people who I love and who bring value to my life and make me a better person and make me want to be a better person. That's everything that there is. Yeah. I think it's understanding small scale value. So daily value. So if it's changing your diet, it's nourishing your body on a daily basis so that you can feel great at 2 PM, for example, rather than, Oh, it's going to get me to 130 pounds. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. It's like you're going to walk into your office one day and your colleague's going to go, huh, you look like you weigh 130 pounds now. That's awesome. I'm going to invite you to lunch. You know, like, no, that's not how, yeah. that's not how things happen. The last thing we'll touch on really quick before we leave you with some actionable things is the idea that happiness as a, a concept, I think a lot of people think, again, this is kind of the arrival fallacy. Like once I am happy, I will have a lot to be grateful for. Once I achieve this, I will have happiness and then therefore gratitude. When really happiness is preceded by and a result of gratitude and acceptance in your life every single day. The people who are the happiest are not the ones who achieve the most. Quite often they're on paper, they have very little, but they're the ones who have the most gratitude and they're the ones who accept their life circumstances and accept you know, this is my reality and they just, they show up and they do their best. I think it is also the ability to accept and productively change their circumstances that make them unhappy. That's important. Happiness is preceded by an acknowledgement of unhappiness. It's that both of them can exist. To go back to the me being gay, because this is like, this hits hard. It's like, I tried, I'm like, I can be happy. I can be happy. I can find a guy that I love. Cause like, I think no matter what, you're still a human being and you love other humans. I can be happy in a, you know, I can have a family. I can be happy with a husband. I can do this. And it's like, kind of like toxic positivity. Like I can do this. It will be okay. I'm, you know, I have all these other good things in my life. I didn't become truly happy until I accepted like, no, like, that's not going to make me happy. And I'm not happy right now. It's so hard to be like, I am miserable right now. (laughs) And it's the same thing with like, you know, having anxiety or having a mental health disorder. like, I have to accept that I am not in a good place. Yeah. Otherwise you're just, you're just trying to fool yourself. Yeah. Guess what? That doesn't work. But I think it's also really important that you remember that suffering in your life and you always kind of have it. Like, I think that there's this you know, part of being a human being is that you start to forget your past suffering and take for granted the current life that you have and your happiness. But the hard work is to remember more often than you allow yourself to forget it, because that is what provides the necessary perspective to be grateful and happy in everyday life. Every day I go to bed and I say, holy moly, ah, there's a, there's a woman beside me. (laughs) This is the best. (laughs) I never thought that this would happen. It is so crazy, but I didn't come out till I was 26. Yeah. So I don't know exactly when I just like had kind of the idea (laughs) that I wasn't straight, but I remember it was young. Yeah. 
So that's like 15 years. I'm only seven years in yeah. to this like new life. And it's still like, holy moly. Yeah. I never thought <laughs> this would happen. <laughs> and I say this all the time, but it, it's because it does blow my mind. There's this idea, like, so gra- a lot of people practice gratitude. They say, oh, I'm going to practice gratitude. But I think that there's an important linguistic difference between gratitude and gratefulness. So gratitude is, I think it was kind of like a, a momentary emotion and you feel it in positive moments of your life where gratefulness is an overall orientation towards feeling gratitude in all of your human existence, not just the positive aspects. And so it's being grateful for the life you have, even in times of suffering. It's being grateful for the resources that you have and your ability to overcome adversity, being grateful for people in your life, even if they sometimes cause you pain, being thankful that you have something to live for, even though life is sometimes very hard. It's being grateful that crises represent opportunities for growth and that even through suffering, there is an enormous opportunity for gratitude. Gratefulness, it's like a lens that you look through all of the time. Whereas gratitude is something that you experience in a moment and then it's gone. And I think that it's so important. And I like, I, I, it's really hard. It's really hard work. I mean, you certainly have a lot in your life that has been painful. And I have a lot in my life that has been painful and being and coming out as gay is only, only one of those things. It's hard to think back and, and remember those really painful times to the extent that we can remember them because of all of our trauma and, be grateful that that helps us turn into the people that we are. But ultimately that's the truth of it. And that once you start to orient your life in a a grateful way, then happiness is a, almost a guarantee. Yeah. I hadn't actually heard of the linguistic difference between gratefulness and gratitude. Mm. So thanks for that. You're welcome. I, I often ask my clients, what are you grateful for today? If I don't, you know, if their, their nutrition's pretty dialed in, it's like, and it does force you to kind of look at today, what am I grateful for? But I think that's, that's different than gratitude. It's easy to feel gratitude for things that have gone well. Like, I think that when you're standing on the podium at the CrossFit games, of course, it's easy to feel gratitude for your coach. When you're achieving, it's easy to feel gratitude. When you're not achieving, when you're suffering, when you're in the hospital with cancer, where's your gratitude? It's hard. Yeah. But there's an opportunity there to feel grateful for the nurses and the people who are helping you to feel grateful for your family who are there. When you were talking through this, I was thinking, and I, I haven't necessarily been in this position in my life because I've been an athlete and I've been brought up in a very health conscious household and I've had a healthy body composition my entire life. But I wonder if there are people who have experienced changes in their life or circumstances that maybe have forced them to lose focus on their health and wellness and maybe have caused them to lose an aspect of their health or fitness or gain weight or whatever it may be. And so maybe they aren't grateful necessarily for the body that they're in in this moment. They can't feel gratitude, but they can feel grateful for the body that they're in for allowing them to get them through, you know, a tough change in careers or allows them to care for their parents or whatever it may be. And now they're in a place where they can be and have gratitude for like having the time to care for their body or something like that. Yeah. So it's like reframing, reshaping and using those words to feel like positive and love your body because I don't think anyone can necessarily change their body without first 
having a really healthy amount of gratefulness or love for it. Yeah, I appreciate it. I know that. I'm like using the grateful and gratitude intermit like I think it's okay to do that. Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. No, I think that's great. And that's yeah, it's really important. So we're gonna leave this with three actionable things that almost everyone can take forward and start putting into practice into their life. So the first one would be to just practice radical acceptance. And if you're not sure where to start, traffic jams. That's a great place to start because I think it's universally frustrating. Or let your dog pee on the carpet. Yeah. Or when your your partner takes you off because they've done something wrong for the 1000th time, try it. The second, remove judgmental language. So should, shouldn't, I feel like I should, I feel like I shouldn't, that kind of thing. Try talking to yourself in the third person instead of the first person and see how that feels. And then as difficult as it is, practice living with gratefulness and gratitude in all moments and not just the positive ones. So those are the three takeaways, I think. Do you have anything to add? No. I will note a lot of these concepts aren't ones that we've come up with ourselves. It's based on reading and experiencing, as you mentioned early in the podcast. But we have read a series of books and articles lately that have helped us come to our own conclusions and use these concepts in different ways in our work. And we will post those in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We know this one ran a little bit longer, but we hope that you enjoyed it. And would love to hear your experience with any of these concepts, either as you go or down the road when you put them into practice. So thank you for listening and we will catch you on the next one. <laughs>